Good morning, everyone. Today, we are continue our study that we started two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we looked into a passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, the healing of the paralytic. And as we were looking into this passage, we noticed that here Jesus appears to be a temple and a high priest. And so we concluded that while Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, that we need to view this message in, term, in priestly terms and in terms of a temple kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. Then last week, we consolidated our view of a priestly kingdom or a temple kingdom by serving six fundamental stories in the Bible. We went, started out here in the creation and then to the garden, Abraham, the exodus, the life of Jesus, and to new creation at the end of the Bible. And notice that the theme of temple and priesthood is central to all these stories. Then we began to take a little bit of closer look at the kingdom Jesus is proclaiming, this new creational kingdom. And I am suggesting to you that the best way to visualize this kingdom is to visualize a diamond, a beautifully cut diamond. And as we look at different facets of this diamond, we can notice different aspects of this kingdom. Last week, we looked at two aspects. We looked at the new humanity and the new temple. And in both instances, we noticed that as we're looking at this facet of the new humanity, we see at the core, we see Jesus as the new Adam. And then as we turn this diamond a little bit and, and see the new temple, again, we see Jesus at the core being the chief cornerstone of this new temple. And both times we notice that the spirit plays a seminal role in this to create the humanity as Jesus breathes on the disciples and in the creation of this new temple that the Spirit of God descends on Pentecost on the believers. Well, today I would like to continue that study and, and turn our diamond a couple more times to discover new aspects of Jesus' new creational kingdom. So as we turn this diamond a little bit, I think we can see a living organism. The Apostle Paul uses that analogy of a body. He sees there a body with a head, which is Jesus Christ. In his epistle to the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he writes, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. In Colossians, he talks about Jesus being the head and the church being his body. In Ephesians, he elaborates there a little bit more. In chapter 4, he says there, So Jesus is the head. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So what Paul is saying is here that Jesus is the fountainhead, the source of the church, and supports and gives life to the body and its individual members, 
supplies the individual body parts with the nutrition they need, the strength they need to do their job. And individual body parts, well, this is us. Last week, I suggested that in New Temple, we as a congregation or any church as a congregation has a corporate role to play as priests. Place for forgiveness, to discipleship, to proclaim the good news. But also, in order that this can really function, each one of us has a role to play individually. And that is what Paul is uh, talking here about. Namely, that each one fulfills a role. In 1 Peter chapter 4, one moment here, please. I have too many Bible passages here. It's, sorry, I missed you my passage. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms, namely the gifts the Spirit provides. And we're not going into the individual gifts today. You can read this up for yourself in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or 14 or in on Ephesians and in other passages like Romans. But rather, I want to point out that each and every one of us has a role to play and there is no distinction in value or necessity. So every gift, whatever it is, is necessary and valuable that the whole can function properly. The Apostle Paul makes here an um, imaginative discussion in, in Corinthians between an eye, for instance, or an ear, or, or a hand, or a foot, and, and have them argue who is the most important and, and whether it's necessary that the other one is around as well. But he's pointing out, if the eye says, I don't need anybody else, well, the body is not working. And if the ear says, oh, I don't need anybody else, well, then it's not functioning properly. And so it is just with us. There is no distinction in value. And I want to illustrate this with something I learned in the fall in one of our small groups when we went through Chip Ingram's Your Divine Design study here at our church. This is a study that is intended to discover spiritual gifts and, and talk about them to get a better understanding of what they're all about and then hopefully, of course, uh, to apply them in the church life. And so what uh, Chip Ingram is arguing here is that everyone is endowed with a motivational gift. And then as this is brought into practice with a ministry gift, it can then cause a manifestation in the believer or has an impact that then has a, its own manifestation. So what he's saying is that, for instance, as a motivational gift, if, say, service encouragement, giving, or teaching. Very different motivational gifts. And they can have been implemented in the church, for instance, as a prophet, as a teacher, as helping, or administration. But wherever a believer is coming from with a motivational gift, and whatever then is used as a ministry gift, it can have the same impact in another believer. So, for instance, to increase the faith of a believer to hear a word of wisdom or knowledge, to receive discernment or to receive a prophecy. And that was really um, mind-blowing for me, this understanding that wherever we come from, 
the Spirit can use us in whatever way. And there is no distinction in value. In the secular world, sometimes in, in circles, manual labor is more valued than intellectual labor. In other circles, intellectual labor is higher valued than manual labor. Or in our capitalistic society, sometimes we um, go by the, by the pay grade. So higher paid jobs must be more valuable and necessary for society, whereas lower paid jobs aren't. Well, we know that this is not true. But in the same way, I, reali I realized God uses us in different ways, and we can't predict what the outcome is. Even a, a, a gifting or, or ministry that seems to be unnecessary or peripheral or whatever, you know, as we get into this human-like thinking, we can never know how God uses that. And so, every one of us, whatever it is, is a valuable contribution to this living organism that we know this last time is a temple, a holy temple uh, to the Lord. Oh, now, one of, some of you might be thinking, well, Michael, didn't Apostle Paul say to strive for the higher gifts, like prophecy? And yes, this is true, because prophecy can be a proclamation to the outside world and a word of encouragement to the, towards the inside. But in the same way, when I'm looking here at what we learned in this study, prophecy can come from anywhere. Prophecy comes from a motivational gift of serving, of giving, teaching, whatever one's primary gift is, it can always end in a prophecy for someone if the Spirit is doing that. Now all this talking, what I'm doing here, doesn't help if we haven't discovered our spiritual gifts. One thing that I admit is a little bit of construction side in our church is the um, discovery and the development of spiritual gifts, and we need to work on this and keep this in mind. We have done this now with one study in Susanna and ours, my small group. We have done this before, but we haven't done it in a systematic way because it doesn't really help if we all have a gift but can't really use it. I mean, it's just as if you get, have, a uh, have a talent for a musical instrument or, or a sports talent and, and then you get an instrument and not, you're not playing. Or you have a treadmill at home and just look every day at your treadmill in the basement and never go on the treadmill. Well, you won't get any better in running, right, if you're not, not practicing. And so I admit this is one of the areas we need to work on as a church. Because after all, it is in our constitution that everyone ministers to everyone with their gifts. That is a mandate that we gave ourselves, which is, of course, in Scripture. But it's something we need to live up as we are moving forward. Well, now I would like to turn our diamond a little bit more and I can see another facet of Christ's kingdom, which is a vine. A strong and nicely grown vine with, with a network of large branches and on these branches they're hanging really pleasant-looking fruit, clusters of grape. 
Jesus talks here about the vine being himself and the branches are the believers, which is us, the church, producing fruit. In the upper room, in John chapter 15, he tells uh, the disciples, I am the true wine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. What Jesus is telling here the disciples and is telling us to live in total dependence on him. And what he is talking about here is total dependence is to obey his commands. That is abiding in him, obeying his commands. And what is his command? To love one another. This is both a means to remain, to, to remain in him, but also an end in abiding in him. Now, sometimes when we read this passage, we get focused here on this um, withering and being cut off and eventually being burnt. We kind of get a little bit scared here. But I think it is good to view this passage within the context of Jesus, what Jesus is doing here in the upper room discourse. Namely, he's preparing his disciples for his departure. Of course, they don't know this yet, but he knows that. And he's preparing them for the time when it is up to them to carry on the mission. And to go into the world. And he knows that they will fear, that they will face hatred. And he knows that there will be persecution. And generally, he knows that the disciples will see all the injustice in the world. And he tells them, You need to abide in me. You need to keep on loving one another. And be firmly rooted in me. Because otherwise, if your love grows cold, you will wither and die. And then you're useless and being cut off. That's why he's telling them, love one another. Because that is the means to keep you in me, to keep you in the Father, and stay together. Because otherwise, you won't make it. And after all, Jesus here is invoking with the garden motif, Eden. And as Byron has pointed out, God planted a wonderful garden full of beautiful trees. And he did this in order to do something good. So when God is here, the gardener, he's not there to destroy the branches or destroy the vine. Rather, to make it even more beautiful. 
Now, some of you know that I have been growing up in a wine-growing region in Germany, and we got the chance to visit my parents in September, just at the time of harvest. And as we were taking walks through the vineyards around my hometown, we could see that they were having a very, very good harvest. And as we were walking here through the vineyards, there were on, this, on these wines, there were nicely grown large grapes on large clus- in large clusters, dark red ones with a local variety and, and nice greenish or white ones with a Riesling variety. You really could looking forward, well, this will be a great harvest. Well, honestly, I want to be one of these clusters of grapes. Now, I want to be one of these beautifully grown uh, clusters. And if that takes pruning, if God has to prune me in order to get there, well, I'm all for it. Now, Jesus is talking here in general about bearing fruit. But one thing I would like to point out where I see fruit in a special instance, namely the fruit of the spirits. In Galatians, Paul writes here, Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against our things, there is no law. Again, you know, if it takes pruning to get me there, I want to be pruned. In my younger years um, in, in Germany, so way before the invention of the internet, so to speak, in the Stone Age, I had a couple times a chance to help with the harvest. And it is really a good feeling, you know, if you go here through the vineyards and then you uh, cut off these nice clusters and put it in the bucket and then transport it up uh, to the tractor, knowing, you know, this will be a good wine. But once in a while, you know, you come across some um, clusters with only a few grapes on them, you know, shriveled, more like raisins. And you're thinking, ah, you know, who wants that? You know, you don't need that. And after all, who wants to be such a cluster with only a few shriveled grapes? I think we all want to be a nicely developed cluster of grapes. Well, let us turn one more time today our diamond and look at another facet. And what we can see is kingdom. Well, after all, I've been talking about here about Jesus' new creation of kingdom, so there must be a kingdom somewhere. Well, as we're looking into this um, facet of this diamond, we'll see the kingdom, namely the church being the current manifestation of the kingdom, and Christ being the king. Christ being enthroned in the heavenlies. This is one reason why I love so much medieval churches in Europe. Because in their, their worship halls, they not just have an altar with a cross, but usually they have above the altar kind of a half dome. And when you look from the other side towards the altar and look up into this half dome, there is usually an exalted Christ, symbolizing that Christ is enthroned in the heavenlies and ruling and reigning not only over his flock, but ruling 
over the world. But it is, Christ's kingdom is different. It is unlike any other kingdom we know. The Apostle Paul, in his epistle to the Philippian church, captures this very well. In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, he writes, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should, uh, should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a different kingdom Jesus is proclaiming here. It is an upside-down kingdom. How do worldly kingdoms and empire build themselves? Well, usually there's a strong leader um, and a strong, or a strong country, and they conquer other countries and depose other kings and take on new territories and expand. And we can see that all over history, either if you look into the Old Testament with the Babylonians or the Assyrians, the Roman Empire, and then later empires in the medieval ages, up to modern empires like the British Empire. They always start by taking over other territories, either military-wise or by military means, by economic means, or diplomacy, but it's always establishing power over somebody else. But Jesus' kingdom didn't come to pass this way. Rather, Jesus, having all the reasons to stay God, to stay in heavenly, humbled himself, gave up every right, every privilege, and became not just a human being, but eventually took on the role of a criminal dying on the cross. And that is what brought his kingdom into existence. And so as we as followers, so to speak, citizens of this kingdom, we are replicating this attitude and his work as we are expanding the kingdom. The Apostle Paul says that whoever died with Christ and rose with Christ no longer lives for himself, but lives for Christ. Then there's an argument about in, in, within Jesus' disciples about who is the greatest in the kingdom, he tells them in, in Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the Apostle Paul adds here, submit to one another out of reference of Christ. Very different kingdom. And yet, Jesus is telling us that this kingdom is unstoppable. In his parables of the mustard seed, of the leaven, he tells us, no one can, no one and nothing can stop it. Even 
in this parable of the weeds, he says that even if the enemy is planting a counter kingdom, it cannot succeed in stopping Christ's kingdom. Why is that? Where is the power coming from? Of course, you know, this is a rhetorical question. But I just want to pause here for a moment and ponder on this. And I want to use here an, an example from history to, to make us even more appreciate. I want to use here as an example the life of the Byzantine Empire. Now, at the end of the 4th century, the Roman Empire broke up into two parts, a western part and an eastern part. And the western part was gone within a hundred years. Completely gone, never heard of again. But the eastern part endured for another thousand years. Just imagine, Canada is now 155 years. Well, they endured for another thousand years. And they suffered defeats which would have wiped out any other kingdom in their time. The Persians came, took over a large part of their territory, and they were on the brink of collapse, but they came back even more mightier. Then shortly afterwards, the Arab conquest occurred, and they lost huge areas again, and still they could hold out and recover. Then a couple hundred years later, the Seljuk Turks came, again, sweeping through the empire, but they were not done. They came back once again. Why is it? Why was this empire able to regenerate itself? It was able to do this because its power was not its in provinces. The power of the Byzantine Empire was in its capital, in its heart, in its core, in the city of Constantinople. They had impregnable walls. The city had maybe 500,000 people, a million people. They could recruit a whole army just from their own citizens in this, in this place. They had the administration, the bureaucracy to manage all this. And that gave them the strength to come back over and over and over again. Only then when in the course of the Fourth Crusade, the crusaders captured the city, ransacked it, liquidated it, that its fate was sealed. It was able to recover a bit, to come back a little bit with a short-lived spring, and then went into rapid decline and disappeared. But where is the power of Christ's kingdom coming from? It's not coming from its leaders. It's not coming from church programs. It's not coming from church buildings, but it comes from Christ. The Holy Spirit fueling the power of the church coming from Christ and the Father. So I'm thinking it is more than necessary to leave the sea in the church. Because when we take out the sea, we are done. And this is one reason why we're having this fasting and prayer, because particularly in this time of transition, it is more necessary than ever to keep Christ in the center. So I hope that many of you will participate in this weekend as we are once again reaffirming that we want to be rooted in Christ, just as we looked at our examples from our diamond today. We want to be the body who, of Christ 
who gets his strength and his fuel from the source, from the fountainhead, Christ. We want to be the branches who are deeply rooted in the vine, which is Jesus Christ. And we want to be a kingdom, the citizens of Christ's kingdom, who are empowered by Christ, who is enthroned in the heavenlies. Now we have looked at a total of five different aspects of this new creational kingdom. We looked at the new humanity, the new temple, the living organism, which is the body of Christ. We have looked at the vine and the branches and the kingdom. And each time we notice that Christ is the center. From wherever we look, we see Christ is the center. So once again, even though I'm repeating myself, we need to keep the sea in the church, particularly in this time of transition. Next Sunday, we will, we will look one more time at our diamond and ponder a little bit about the fact that we are not living in a vacuum. This diamond is not evolving in a vacuum or free-floating, but we are embedded in a society. And I want to consider a few things, what that means for us as a church. Worship team, please come up.